Welcome back to volume two of some spiritual dialogue with me, Jeremy Howard, and Jackson Washburn. I am all dressed up today, not because um, of this conversation, but because uh, this weekend it is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, and I'm recording my sermon this afternoon for uh, that. And so I usually would participate in a casual Friday of sorts, but today I'm Eastery. Um, very spring looking for our resurrection day message and this will come out on Sunday night so I guess that works I look very eastery and I'm here in Payson Utah and Jackson is very lumberjack looking in Idaho still yes I'm still in Boise okay we're in plaid always repping the plaid yeah no I I I love it it's kind of my mo at this point so I, I don't think I could go without it it's a part of the brand. I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, our first uh, conversation, Jackson was asking me some questions about uh, Old Testament stuff primarily, but the, the Bible's presentation of the nature of God and its consistency in that. And in this video, I'll be asking Jackson some questions about um, the basically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its uh, ex- exclusivity claim that they are the one true church and kind of getting to the root of that, where it came from and where the church is now with that. And so um, if you're ready, we can just jump in this time. Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, again, these questions we send to each other ahead of time. So we have time to prep to give a full answer. And uh, this is the first question I sent over to Jackson. Uh, according to historical documentation and you know, perhaps inference also based on uh, observing history and and kind of understanding what was going on in history. What did Joseph Smith believe about Protestant church history when he began to declare the start of the restored church? Whenever he uh, launched this movement, what was his view of the Protestant church at that time? Um, How can we understand that from history? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question um, because it, it sets the context well uh, for understanding where Joseph Smith was coming from. Um, so Joseph Smith um, grew up uh, in Jacksonian America, um, and he, he lived essentially kind of frontier, um, lived in uh, Vermont, um, moved to New York. Um, and so, you know, he, he lived in essentially the, the eastern states as we would know them. Um, but back then it was, you know, a lot, uh, a lot less developed. Um, and so his, his family, um, by trade, uh, engaged in, in farming and different land cultivation. Um, and so that, that was essentially the, the upbringing that Joseph Smith had, uh, one that was rather backwoods, um, that was, uh, um, within the, what's known as the burned over district. Um, so uh, a region of the United States that was uh, particularly uh, consumed um, with uh, religious uh, revivalism uh, during the, the Second Great Awakening. And um, not only that, but just Jacksonian America, um, the, the Bible was deeply encultured into uh, the uh, American spirit or, or culture, right, uh, at the time. And so that's something that uh, Joseph Smith would have been familiar with, um, if not, uh, you know, directly personally uh, through like intensive reading. Um, it was so encultured that you know phrases and 
uh, motifs uh, were very prolific. Um, and so that was a common part of Joseph's environment. Now, um, be, with that in mind, I, I think uh, it, it doesn't appear that Joseph Smith had an understanding or knowledge of like uh, specific uh, Protestant church history, or like let, let's say like a technical understanding of history. Right? He was by no means a, a historian, um, and so his understanding uh, would have been limited to uh, both his surrounding environment to perhaps, you know, maybe some books or readings that he came across um, or his, uh, his experiences with different Protestant churches at the time. So I, I don't think it can be said that, uh, you know, his knowledge really exceeded, exceeded that of what we would expect uh, from someone living in the American frontier at that time um, in that kind of like more rural uh, uh, landscape. Um, but uh, we do know, uh, given his own personal statements, uh, documents, and uh, uh, texts that he produced, uh, that he did have some unique ways of understanding um, both uh, Christian Protestantism, uh, but also traditional Christianity as a whole. So it's important to understand that during this time period, uh, we see this movement um, both before and during uh, called Christian primitivism, right? Where you have this desire uh, within uh, the Protestant Reformation to get back to primitive Christianity, this belief that um, the, you know, throughout Christian history, there's been these additions or, um, or uh, subtractions from the original Christian church as, as Christ and his apostles established. Um, which led to a need for uh, a reformation um, and in some people's views, a restoration uh, that we needed to go back to that primitive Christianity to get the real, uh, the real stuff that uh, Jesus and the New Testament taught. So um, Joseph Smith's own family background, uh, Christian primitivism was an important part of it. Uh, his maternal uncle uh, named Jason Mack, uh, he was a Christian primitivist, um, and his father, Joseph Smith Sr., also appears to have been a Christian primitivist, or, or seeker, as they were called. Um, uh, throughout his life, he refused to uh, join any of the existing Christian churches uh, because he sought a return to the original church. Um, of course, Joseph Smith Sr. eventually joins the church that Joseph Smith founds, um, but that's kind of the, the familial environment that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with. Um, and uh, with, with Christian uh, primitivism, um, you essentially have this quest to restore original Christianity. So during this time period, we have several like very successful denominations, um, such as the Baptists and the Methodists, who uh, very much are attempting to restore this like early pristine Christianity. Um, and uh, we also have the Seventh-day Adventists um, uh, making attempts to do so as well. The, the 19th century, um, I've talked to various uh, evangelicals or Protestants today, um, and, and many of them will say that uh, the 19th century, especially in America, uh, was a time of, of heresy, let's say, 
that uh, hadn't been seen since, uh, you know, let's say like around the, the Council of Nicaea or something like that. Like uh, during this time, we have an explosion of Christian movements uh, that differ from one another in what they're doing, uh, what they see as uh, perhaps a restoration of, you know, the key elements of early Christianity. Mormonism is just one of these movements. Um, but uh, um, Christian primitivism is also epitomized by like the Stone Campbell uh, movement. Um, so like Alexander Campbell. Um, and uh, they they have uh, their their views of Christian primitivism are so, mm, let's say, intense uh, that uh, they even, you know, really reject uh, kind of the influence of the, of the Old Testament or see it as largely irrelevant. It's the New Testament that they're primarily uh, concerned with. Um, so this is, this is what Joseph Smith is, uh, is surrounded by. Um, these competing denominations um, that have far less of, a, of an emphasis on like ecumenical uh, relationships than we might find today. Um, and where many of them are competing to establish themselves as uh, the the authentic Christianity, the you know uh, replicating the original Christianity, and uh, there's plenty of uh, religious revivalism uh, going on as well uh, that Joseph Smith would have had uh, exposure to, both uh, in the larger surrounding area, but then also in the Palmyra Manchester area. Um, and uh, uh, from his own accounts, this is this was disturbing to Joseph Smith. Um, he he very much felt that uh, uh, in his quest for kind of securing personal salvation or or seeking it out, um, that uh, he experienced confusion as to which of all these Christian sects uh, accurately uh, or or um, like actually would uh, allow him to acquire such. Um, which of them taught, uh, you know, the original uh, Christian gospel or, or, you know, most directly paralleled the, the New Testament church. Um, so I, I imagine for our listeners, the, the story of, of Joseph Smith um, being a young boy, uh, 14 years of age, going out into the woods after being impacted by uh, several verses of scripture, the chief one being James 1.5, uh, and feeling that after this time of talking to pastors, of attending different churches, of listening to what they had to say, um, that he, you know, ultimately had to just um, appeal to God directly, um, that because all of them were drawing on the Bible to support themselves, uh, the Bible um, in and of itself uh, was an insufficient means of answering that question for Joseph. And so uh, he, he sought uh, God in prayer. And, um, from, from his earliest uh, uh, first vision uh, account, um, this is very much framed as, a, as a, uh, an act of seeking personal salvation, of uh, finding redemption. Um, it's later in his life where he places a, a heavier emphasis on um, the, that, that this included or, or was primarily a search to know which of all the churches was true. Um, the canonized account in uh, the LDS Standard Works, um, written in 1838, uh, you know, very much uh, strongly reflects a, a view of, 
Joseph Smith's first vision as being it, a means by which he learned which of all the churches was true, if none of them were. Um, so uh, with that in mind, I, I think that's kind of the best that we can understand Joseph Smith's view of uh, Protestant church history. Um, you know, he would be familiar with the, the Reformation. Um, he would likely have been familiar with uh, how the Reformation was a break off uh, from the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, the thing was, there weren't many Catholics in America at the time, uh, not nearly to the extent today. And so um, it's, uh, you know, I, I imagine his direct exposure to Catholicism or, or even Orthodox Christianity would be minimal, if at all. Um, but uh, yeah, he was very much steeped in this, this Protestant environment that included this element of restorationism or Christian primitivism. Um, and because of that, it seems uh, even going into uh, his first vision experience, as he claims it, uh, he already had kind of deep uh, concerns or, or even doubts that any of the Christian churches any of the Protestant churches that he would have been familiar with uh, uh, fully represented the original uh, Christian church. Um, so uh, we can also see uh, some more views on this um, in his, uh, through like some of his earliest publications or writings or revelations. Um, so there's one in particular, um, when he talks about establishing a church, this is recorded in 1829, but it's not published until 1833. Um, this, this appears in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and it's uh, uh, essentially, um, it, it pulls a lot from language of, uh, of John the Revelator, um, where uh, he, he says that, quote, beginning of the rising up and coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Um, this church I called forth out of the wilderness. Um, and then, quote, uh, thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Um, essentially, this, uh, he interprets language from the book of Revelation in such a way uh, that rather than seeing the church as a, a uh, fully invisible or non-existent, um, you have this, uh, these original teachings over time from the original Christian church uh, going in, you know, being suppressed or um, uh, essentially being in exile in ways. Um, they, they might be corrupted. They might uh, be present in this vein of Christianity or this vein of Christianity. Um, but there's this, you know, if we take this original core, it fragments, right, over time. Um, and, and so Joseph Smith is unique in this particular way that he interprets um, the, the, the church as being one in the wilderness um, rather than one that's uh, completely non-existent. Um, and there's other parts of his early revelations where language is used that uh, casts um, you know, also perhaps like a, a more charitable or softer light to um, Christianity at the time uh, where Joseph Smith is told about, um, you know, wise men or, or men of God that, that he doesn't um, even know of, uh, but that are still present. Um, 
it, it's interesting um, when we review claims of exclusivism with uh, some of the, this language used, um, because certainly Joseph Smith uh, saw uh, things like laws and ordinances, uh, the authority, for instance, to perform uh, saving ordinances is something that was lost uh, during what he sees as, uh, and claims was a great apostasy that took place in Christendom. Um, but that doesn't preclude Christianity as a whole as, uh, you know, still having valid forms of, uh, you know, perhaps miracles or manifestations of faith or prayer or things like that. Um, but, but definitely his conception of apostasy early on uh, primarily revolves around this idea that there was an original authority given from Christ to his apostles and that apostolic authority was lost uh, following the death of the apostles or, or shortly thereafter. Um, and that authority was essential for uh, carrying out uh, various uh, religious um, rituals, sacraments, uh, or as he terms them, ordinances. Um, I, I think I'll stop there for now, um, but I'm happy to, you know, hear any of your reactions to that or, um, you know, kind of how, I, I don't know, wherever you'd like to take it. Yeah, um, thanks. Um, so what's your evaluation, I guess, of his initial definition of what God's, God's religion on earth should look like? Um, you know, before he was spurred on to ask God which which church is true, he had some sort of a presupposition there that there would be one true universal church on earth. And so uh, that presupposition, where did it come from? I, I know you, you touched on that a little bit, but maybe explain in a little more detail if you can where that presupposition that he had about that came from and your evaluation of it. Yeah, I imagine that was uh, uh, the the product of his environment, both along the lines of Christian primitivism, um, that there was a, such thing as an original church that looked a certain way, believed a certain way, practiced a certain way, and that those things together um, have not been preserved over time, um, and and not in the denominations or sects that Joseph Smith would have been uh, familiar with. So. um, Just kind of to add to it, I mean, in his time with the Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians, kind of like probably the big three that existed there, there was a level of understanding among them that other Christians not in their denomination would still go to heaven. You know, that that it wasn't like the Baptists were preaching, you must be Baptist in order to be saved or Methodists or Presbyterians, though there might have been... smaller pockets of that going on for people who are super fired up about their denomination. I think historically speaking, we can, we can see that there's a recognition of, uh, you know, primary and secondary issues where it seems like okay. from the on, from the outset, Joseph Smith didn't pick up on that because he was wanting to know which denomination was true. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, I, I think um, that's certainly been something that uh, has been, I, I've seen emphasized a lot in contemporary Christianity um, among those uh, specific uh, denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, that um, there, there's this view of, you know, the more uh, universal uh, church in Christ, even if there is um, uh, differences in secondary and tertiary issues. But I do think that at this time, 
we would observe higher rates of those denominations or churches belonging to them uh, claiming that uh, theirs was the 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 legitimate uh, expression of Christianity and even condemning others uh, to to hell or you know being a lot more exclusive in that view of uh, what constituted uh, Christ's uh, church. Um, you know, uh, we also have the, the historical tensions of, of Calvinism at, versus Arminianism. Um, and that's another huge point uh, that, upon which denominations uh, might see each other as outside of, uh, of um, the, the collective uh, Christian uh, church or, or body of Christ. Um, one thing that's interesting with Joseph Smith um, is that uh, he, he didn't really use the term Calvinism. Um, Presbyterianism was more of the, the shorthand uh, for expressing uh, reformed theology. Um, but uh, after his first vision in the 1838 account that's canonized, um, he comes home and, you know, he's, he, he, he describes himself as being like distressed or, or, you know, pretty, pretty impacted by what just happened. And, you know, maybe he's like leaning up against the fireplace or something. And his mom asks him, you know, what's up? You know, what, what's going on? Because uh, she can see that something's off. And uh, he, he recounts that he says, you know, essentially like, oh, never mind, mother. I've just learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. Right. Which I, I find to be actually kind of humorous, uh, kind of like an understatement. Right. Um, uh, where, you know, you have claims of seeing deity right and having this remarkable vision um and the, the first thing that he says to his mom is essentially you know i got my answer i don't think calvinism is is true she was presbyterian at the time um and so you know it makes sense why you know personally uh how that was uh um uh relevant to her uh but i i still find that remark just a little bit uh um maybe flippant or, or kind of an understatement for, for the, you know, the grounds of what just, uh, what he claims just took place. Uh, but, but yes, I, I do think in his life, um, specifically along the lines of Calvinism versus Arminianism, that was a very big um, divide. Um, and I've often described Mormonism as being hyper Arminian in many respects. If we were to take the, the acronym TULIP, I'm pretty sure that Mormonism would take perhaps the exact opposite stance on every single one yeah. of those letters. Uh, and Joseph Smith himself says, uh, describes himself in his early life as being partial to the Methodist sect. Um, he, he was never an official member, um, although he did uh, attend in different ways. Um, but uh, it was something that he was partial to. And scholars of religion have observed ways in which Methodism has uh uh, historically impacted Mormonism, right? Some of the, the ways in which Joseph Smith organizes his church or espouses his early theology uh, have parallels within Methodism. Um, but yes, I, I, I essentially, I, I, I just want to emphasize that I do think that it was more common for churches back then to be a bit more exclusive with each other, even within Christendom. I don't doubt that there were like theologians or, or individuals or, or even church communities uh, that, that did espouse a, a more perhaps inclusive or universal view uh, that you've described, uh, one that does place uh, uh, a distinction on these secondary and tertiary issues. 
But I do think that uh, that kind of exclusivism, such as I've described, um, uh, I, I don't know if I would be comfortable historically describing that as, as purely a misunderstanding on Joseph's part. Um, I, if it is a misunderstanding, I think it's one that uh, he was encultured with or that he observed from his surrounding religious environment uh, during during this revivalism time. Because the, the, the whole point of the revivalism, uh, you had these circuits or you know, groups of churches or ministers that would travel and specifically try to win converts to their denomination, uh, often attacking other denominations, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I think Christianity was, American Christianity was just a bit different at this time and, and how it was understood and expressed. Yeah, um, there would be an interesting study to do because there are some... Uh, one-off instances that I know of in history, like um, John Wesley, uh, Mm -hmm. founder of Methodism, and George Whitfield, you know, they eventually decided they couldn't do ministry together because of Calvinism. Uh, Yet, I don't think either one of them uh, proclaimed the other one to be anathema either. Mm -hmm. And so it would be be an interesting study. Um, You've mentioned the difference between restoration and reformation, which Mm -hmm. is critical. Yeah, because uh, obviously Joseph Smith wasn't trying to reform anything. He was trying to restore something uh, yes. with, I mean, I, I guess, would you agree that that means he believed, well, it, I, I guess it's part and parcel to Mormon theology. He believed the church was just gone completely. Uh, yes. In the sense of uh, like the, the authority to uh, officiate over these ordinances or sacraments, um, he did believe that that was gone um, completely Although Joseph Smith would have recognized, um, you know, the uh, there still would have been truth in the existing sects or denominations of Christianity, albeit in fragmented forms. And so, I mean, I think about his initial statements, um, you know, like the real famous one from his history that God answered him his prayer saying that he should join none of them. They're all wrong. The personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his mm-hmm. sight, uh, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, they teach the doctrines and commandments of men. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Uh, those are really strong statements. And, I agree. Um, do, do you think he even saw anything in them that was worth keeping? I mean, you mentioned that he saw that there was some truth, but that statement is just so sweeping and strong against it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I, I think it's important to, so there's four, uh, firsthand, uh, first vision accounts from Joseph Smith. Um, and then there's various secondhand ones as well. Um, and so there's one in 1832, 1835, 1838, which is the one that you just read from. And I believe another one in uh, uh, 1840, uh, if not 1842 or something. And the one um, I just read from is on the church's site. Yeah, that's the, that's the canonized account. Um, so that, that's included in the standard works. Um, and uh, so that's been the one that's um, impacted uh, the Latter-day Saint narrative about Joseph Smith's first vision and the Christian apostasy uh, the most. Um, uh, you know, that, that's very safe to say. Um, the immediate uh, context out of which that um, text was written um, was right after, uh, right in the same time that Joseph Smith had sp- spent several months imprisoned in Liberty Jail. Um, 
this is also going on uh, around the time of the, the Missouri War, uh, where the Saints, the Latter-day Saints, were driven out of Missouri. They were killed. They were persecuted. Um, they were suffering uh, uh, many afflictions. Um, and so there was active conflict between the Mormons and the Missourians at this time. And so, uh, th yeah, this was a period of uh, persecution in the early LDS history that hadn't been uh, experienced before um, and was super significant. And so Joseph Smith, right off the bat in this, uh, in this history that he writes, um, recognizes uh, the, the many persecutions that he suffered and how he wants to give a full account. But um, I, I think that the lens of persecution is very important to see the, how, uh, how persecution impacts and influences the language that Joseph Smith uses in describing both his early upbringing, his first vision experience, and, and uh, um, uh, his experiences since, uh, because that's very much the driving theme, uh, I would say, in, that, in the 1838 account. Later, so there's another first vision account that he writes after the 1838 account, um, where some of these harsher statements, like you said, uh, creeds are an abomination, you know, things like that. Um, he, um, those are softened. Um, and the, the same kind of like harsh language isn't used. And in his earlier first vision accounts, uh, that language isn't used uh, to the same degree either. So I do think the, the 1838 account is unique in kind of the level, uh, the intensity of rhetoric that it uses um, I think that can be historically understood given the context. Um, and so, um, you know, Latter-day Saints themselves might debate, you know, uh, is this meant to reflect uh, verbatim statements uh, or, you know, should we understand persecution as very much driving or intensifying uh, the way that this first vision experience is uh, recounted by Joseph Smith? Um, so, yeah, uh, that's that's more or less you know what i how i approach the 1838 account and how i understand it um i think um it, it's unique in the intensity of language that it uses and like i said previously uh joseph smith um not just uh he didn't just pull from methodism uh often in his formation of the early latter-day saint church um uh but Throughout his life, uh, he was, uh, and I'll speak to this uh, later as well in, in our discussion, uh, but Joseph Smith was remarkably open to pulling from, you know, various sources of truth uh, that he saw in different uh, places, whether it's Methodism, whether it's uh, different aspects of, of Christianity, whether it's Freemasonry, whether it's what he believes, you know, uh, from Egyptian papyri or antiquity, um, he seems to be very uh, dynamic in his uh, effort throughout his life to pull truth from various sources. And so I do think that uh, in uh, other places where he talks about Christianity, um, there's certainly levels of critique there. Uh, there's certainly times in which he expresses disagreement or expresses this is, you know, where I believe that they have gone apostate or something like that. But then there's plenty of other places where he affirms the truth that they do have, and he's actually quite charitable to them. So um, what, what do you think the implications are of the church canonizing the strongest one? Yeah, um, like I said, that's uh, very much uh, 
impacted the narrative that we uh, tell ourselves internally in the church, right? It's used in the missionary discussions. Um, and um, so this, this persecution lens has persisted uh, long after Latter-day Saints have actually been persecuted, right? Uh, where uh, not only do we remember... Now they run a whole state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, not only do we remember our days in Missouri, right, uh, and very much feel rooted and uh, like that's a key part of our history, uh, but also, you know, having to cross the plains and the persecution suffered afterwards. Um, you know, since since Utah became a state, Latter Day Saints haven't been physically persecuted to anywhere near the same extent that uh, happened in early LDS history. And yet that's such an important part of our internal narrative. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say that I, I think that's wrong. Uh, I do think that's an, an important part of our, of our narrative. Um, but uh, some, sometimes that can manifest itself in such a, uh, uh, either an exaggerated or overemphasized way uh, that we run the risk of engaging in a persecution complex, right? Uh, where, you know, let, let's say in exchanges with Christians today, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If Christians are witnessing outside of Mormon temples or pageants or conferences, um, Latter-day Saints might internally uh, link those Christians with the Christians of uh, early LDS history. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very safe to say that, you know, um, uh, they should not be seen as one-to-one equivalents, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference from, you know, engaging in, in evangelism versus, you know, physical persecution, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't want to unnecessarily, uh, you know, belabor the point, but maybe a couple quick follow-up questions on this one again, before moving to the next yeah. one. Um, I mean, with the church taking that at the 1838 statement with that language in it, do you, because from a Christian perspective, we view, you know, scripture as being inspired. Scripture is God breathed. Yeah. Therefore it has authority. And mm-hmm. from more of a, a universal church perspective that the Roman Catholics have and Latter-day Saints have and others, the church has the authority to deem what literature has authority basically. And by yeah. the church, the church canonized that 1838 edition. So is, do you see that as God then, saying that that is the most accurate articulation of uh, Christianity during the 1800s? Uh, are you asking me if I think that the 1838 account, if that's the most like accurate first edition account? From, yeah, or? from God's perspective. Is God then saying through the authority in the church that that statement is the most accurate articulation? No, I, 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 I personally, and I think Mormon Mormonism in general, would take a different approach to scripture. Um, you know, certainly uh, themes of authority and uh, inspiration are there. Um, and so I don't want to downplay that, but they're certainly not present in, to the same extent that it would be for uh, uh, Protestants or, or other Christians. Um, I, I think the 1838 account um, or, or the Mormon approach to scripture uh, would perhaps place a higher emphasis on uh, what, you know, what is the context through which we uh, even recognize this as scripture? Um, Because Mormonism has this idea of canonized scripture, but then also uncanonized scripture, that uh, scripture is, uh, is inspired by God, uh, but that doesn't carry 
the belief of inerrancy or infallibility, uh, such as present in uh, Protestantism. Um, and so with this first vision account, um, the other first vision accounts, uh, I, I think, are growing in their significance and in their importance as we've uh, turned back to them. Um, and as we have uh, uh, tried to see what insights we can glean from them as well. Um, when it comes to the formation of the canon, uh, that's very much like a communal act within Mormonism, uh, where not just uh, from a top-down type, uh, type approach, but also from a bottom-up. Um, these texts that are historically significant to us um, can be elevated to the level of canon uh, when agreed upon by both uh, the leaders of the church and the laity. Um, uh, you know, often the leaders of the church will propose that something is added to the canon, and then the church members themselves are able to uh, sustain that move and then include it into the canon. So while I do think that the canon is, has special significance within the LDS church or the LDS tradition, um, it doesn't preclude other things from being seen as inspired or scriptural either. Uh, the canon um, in many ways uh, just recognizes which texts of scripture, which historical documents have such a, uh, an impact on us uh, collectively uh, so as to, to, to merit like a special place in our sacred history. Um, so like I said, because this was brought to the canon, because this was an official uh, uh, history of the church that Joseph Smith was claiming to write at the time, um, the other first vision accounts, uh, one of them is present in a personal journal. One of them is, you know, written to an individual, you know, um, this was this one in particular, Joseph Smith meant to be published and like officially circulated, right? And so I, I do think that it carries that distinction as opposed to the others. Um, but I think Latter-day Saints are increasingly looking to the other accounts to glean insights and value in understanding what Joseph Smith, how he understood his first vision, uh, how he understood his uh, early religious formation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, personally, again, I because of these other accounts, I don't think I would go to the 1838 account and even though it's canonized say this represents the verbatim uh word of god um and uh you know personally because of that persecution lens i i don't know if uh in joseph smith's uh you know if there's any way that we can get to what the most likely or uh earliest uh first vision experience is um I, I imagine that it didn't have that same level of, uh, of persecution rhetoric in it. Um, and uh, so I, I imagine that it would probably have been toned down um, if that was his experience, because that's how it's reflected in the other accounts. And so I, I think when it comes to the intensity of the rhetoric, the 1838 account is the exception rather than the norm in comparison to the, the ways that Joseph Smith generally described it. Okay. Um Last follow-up question on that. I mean, would you say it's accurate that Joseph Smith viewed the uh, church being um, a one true church model being part and parcel to the gospel? Um, 
did he see, did he connect those two things even from the beginning um, that if you are going to have the fullness of the gospel, you have to have the fullness of a restored one true universal church. Yeah, I'm think I'm thinking so um, just because he, he tied uh, the concept of, of church and, and also the gospel with these concepts of, of authority of, of uh, ordinances and, and the authority to preside over various sacraments and rituals. Um, and so I, I, do, I do think that uh, very early on we, we see a, a kind of a more exclusive hierarchy, uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy being proposed by Joseph Smith. Um, and that seems to be integral to the model that he sustained throughout his life. It developed, of course, and, you know, the, the, uh, his ecclesio- ecclesiology developed over time and changed. And so it was by no means static. But I do think uh, that that kind of exclusive uh, concept of, of priesthood authority um, was, uh, was a key part of it. Um, and, and that's why Joseph Smith took such measures to uh, promote and foster unity within his Mormon restoration movement. Um, I, I, I also want to point out that uh, uh, even though this, this early Mormon restoration movement uh, was very much defined by uh, its Christian primitivism, its drive towards establishing the original Christian church, um, that uh, we can't just purely understand it on those terms either. Uh, there, it also espoused elements of a, of a kind of like Hebraic primitivism where Joseph Smith was also looking to uh, the Old Testament to restore various practices and religious beliefs and things uh, from it. And so that's one way in which his primitivism uh, deferred from his contemporaries, uh, whereas, you know, Alexander Campbell or, or others might have been more purely interested in, you know, how do we uh, replicate the New Testament church? Joseph Smith drew generously as well from the Old Testament and, you know, brought back various offices or practices or concepts. Um, And this was part of his larger understanding of what he terms the restoration of all things or the restitution of all things. Um, And so that's why he wasn't just, you know, drawing from the New Testament uh, he was also drawing from the Old Testament, but then also drawing from other sources of truth as he saw them. Um, so it was, it was uh, a lot more expansive than just a, a pure Christian primitivist mm-hmm. movement, although those elements were certainly there. Gotcha. Okay, um, so moving on to the second umbrella question, uh, switching umbrellas. <laughs> um, this question is, and of course this is if you agree with my assessment, um, I see a movement within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on a layperson level uh, and a little bit uh, at the hierarchy level, but uh, more so in just a average Joe kind of your neighbor is Mormon, you know, kind of perspective that there's a movement to want to be seen as a denomination within Christianity, as opposed to something that uh, perhaps more accurately reflects Joseph's initial declaration that this is something separate from Protestant Christianity. Uh, do you see that movement as existing to a certain degree? And why do you think that is? And is it a good thing for the church? Yeah. yeah yes and no. Um, the, the, the way that I see it manifested, um, 
uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, our the, the collective Latter-day Saint experience of uh, religious persecution, both in America and abroad, um, you know, that's not really present anymore to the same extent that it was historically. And uh, so while the early LDS church uh, was very much defined or uh, impacted heavily by this persecution, um, to the extent that Latter-day Saints literally you know, moved across the plains to leave the United States as it was at the time and distance themselves in, you know, very uh, tight-knit communities um, and be rather separatist um, from, you know, other Christians and America in general. Um, you know, since Utah statehood and since uh, Mormonism, the, the LDS church has uh, tried to assimilate uh, into the American, the larger American uh, uh, social environment. Um, I, I think there's been, it's been part and parcel of that assimilation. Um, so I think um, a, another part of this was uh, more the, the, the LDS church, a lot of, uh, a lot of very key or unique practices or, or elements of it. Um, that defined it early on um, have since been discontinued. Um, some chief ones that come to mind, um, a, a kind of like uh, socioeconomic communalism, right? This kind of uh, common living, the, the law of consecration as it's called. Yeah, the, the nation of Deseret. <laughs> yeah, the nation of Deseret. So with the nation of Deseret, we also have this concept of a, a, of a democratic theocracy, right? Um, a, a religious kingdom. Uh, that operates on democratic principles, but is uh, very much distinct from the the forms of government and society that we see in the U.S. at the time. Um, and uh, oh, and, and then of course the the practice of polygamy. Um, so you know those those three things, which very much concerned um, uh, Americans in the early Latter Day Saint Church, whether they're in Nauvoo or whether they're in Utah, uh, all three of those kind of key, you know, uh, practices or beliefs have since been put aside or rejected or denounced or, or something like that, right? Um, and so Mormonism has had to do that um, largely uh, in order to assimilate into American society. Um, so on a lay level, um, so that's like a meta type historical view, um, on a, on a contemporary level. Um, I, I do think that, um, because this persecution has largely, you know, passed us or completely passed us, um, because we no longer practice, uh, those three things, which so deeply, uh, set us apart from other Americans or other Christians, um, and there's been a, a historical move to assimilate, and uh, especially around the 40s, um, the, the 40s uh, um, or, or the turn of the, the 20th century, um, after polygamy had ceased to be a practice, that's really when Latter-day Saints in, in an American context made the move to be as, as a, the most American Americans, right? Champ, championing uh, 
a defense and, and conception of the nuclear family um, of, you know, maybe conservative politics of, of different things like that, uh, where, you know, we tried to show ourselves as the most patriotic, the, the ones that are most devoted to what it means to be an American, right? And this uh, continues to form through the 50s and the 60s. Um, that's also when we see uh, Mormonism, Mormons in America, turning to the Republican Party and very much espousing it. And even today, uh, um, or at least according to recent demographics, um, the the most uh, intensely Republican sect of Christianity or, or, or religious you know, group in America is our Latter-day Saints. Um, now, the, the, the growing generations are changing that quite a bit. It's, it's about 50-50 now uh, with the millennials uh, between Democrats and Republicans. But um, uh, that, that shift and that embrace of uh, conservative uh, politics, um, we, it's ironic. The, the Republican Party was actually founded uh, against what it referred to as the twin relics of barbarism, um, slavery and polygamy. Right. And the only ones practicing polygamy at the time were the Mormons. So Mm -hmm. in ways, the Republican Party actually began as an anti-Mormon party. Right. And yet in the in the 50s um, and 60s, we see this turn towards the Republican Party uh, by Mormons as, you know, being uh, one way in which we would uh, further assimilate into American society and gain approval and kind of acceptance uh, from our uh, um, you know, from other Protestants and, and from the evangelicals. Um, since then, evangelicals and Mormons and, and Catholics too have often uh, withheld or, or upheld um, similar social positions, whether it's on abortion, whether it's on um, the sexual revolution, gender roles, um, you know, LGBT uh, uh, issues. Um, so, even though you know our religions have remained distinct theologically, uh, that kind of association we've still kind of seen ourselves within uh, conservative Christianity in America. Um, so that's where I would agree that if there's been moves to you know uh, be more similar to Protestants, uh, that it's been uh, a, a part of this larger assimilation into American society. Um, I have not seen, however, uh, besides besides the repudiation or the cessation of the, those three distinct practices uh, I mentioned earlier, um, I, I haven't really seen on a, a grassroots level or an institutional level um, any kind of widespread desire to identify as Protestants or identify within actual Protestantism. I think we've uh, collectively remained and and emphasized uh, our uh, distinctiveness uh, from American or, or just Protestant Christianity. Um, we've maintained uh, during this time our exclusive truth claims to authority and, uh, um, you know, uh, of our church structure, the, the one true church. That None of that has ceased really on a local or, or you know, hierarchical level, I would say. Um, but uh, if if I did have to point out one area where I think uh, Mormonism has uh, 
you know, begun to draw more from Protestantism, I would say it, our views on grace and our soteriology uh, have um, uh, developed um, in the past several decades. It, it um, seems like almost perennially, Uchtdorf's uh, messages at General Conference just come across sounding very evangelical. Yeah, yeah, I think you can you can definitely say that, and and I'm hesitant to say that that's purely because uh, we've decided to start listening to evangelicals. Um, I, d- I certainly think that there's been an influence there, um, but uh, this kind of new approach to grace, this reconsideration of grace, as opposed to earlier uh, Mormon conceptions of of you know purely like a works driven salvation or something like that. Um, our, our own scriptural texts have many references to grace. And so I think while uh, exposure to evangelical Christianity or Protestantism have informed this uh, reorientation in ways, um, this is largely being driven by uh, a, a new assessment or uh, a new appreciation for teachings that were already present in Mormon scripture but we're now just starting to either interpret more accurately or place a higher emphasis on, um, for instance. Um, and I explained uh, in our last interview how um, my mother converted to evangelical Christianity when I was 12. And so uh, I've had the personal experience in my high school years of attending uh, both a non-denominational church and, and the LDS church Um and I absolutely loved uh, the view of grace that was taught at this non-denominational church. Uh, I, I consider it very foundational to my own spiritual upbringing uh, because it, it allowed me to, um, it, it gave me a paradigm to go back to what I would then find uh, teachings already present in Mormon scriptures, such as the Book of Mormon, that I hadn't appreciated. And so when I, re- when I personally read the Book of Mormon, I see this this gospel of grace present in it um, to such a uh, to such an extent that I can't um, I I can no longer ignore it right and I, I find it to be a very beautiful part of of Mormon theology and a um, an original part of Mormon theology that we just haven't appreciated or we haven't uh, understood in the in the proper way so I I, I do think that uh, evangelicals have had an influence collectively in uh, Latter-day Saints as a whole, perhaps being more sensitive to grace. Um, but I do want to emphasize that in our own scriptures from our from the earliest days of Mormonism, uh, I, it's my opinion that those teachings are, are have been largely present and we just haven't appreciated them or understood them uh, in the way that we ought to. Um, do you... Would you say that on a, I guess, more of a global scale, maybe not just regional to the American West, but on a more global scale, uh, would you say that the majority of Latter-day Saints don't fully understand or recognize Joseph Smith's assessment of Protestantism? Um, uh, could, could you be more specific like, with that? So like, what, what do you mean by Joseph Smith's assessment? So the stuff we were talking about in the last question, basically, um, how, you know, he was, he was pretty clear that um, the other churches are not true, but there is mm-hmm. one true church that God is restoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I do get the sense that the majority of Latter-day Saints recognize that 
they're a part of a restored church, but I don't okay. know if they get the other side of that coin so much um, about what the implications of what that means for other churches that Joseph Smith uh, more clearly articulated in the historical accounts as opposed to perhaps in uh, the scriptures. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, I think that uh, you will find some, some lay level Latter-day Saints that perhaps uh, even though these teachings are very much present in our curriculum or in our scriptures or uh, uh, among the, the teachings by the general authorities, um, that uh, there are indeed Latter-day Saints that uh, don't personally espouse those take, you know, ex- exclusivist uh, claims. Um, so those do exist, and, and whether that's due to um, their examination of those claims and finding them, you know, lacking or uh, perhaps just, you know, ignorance and, and you know, not mm-hmm. uh, being uh, as educated as they could be, um, you know, I, I could see that happening uh, both ways. Um, I, I do think, however, that most Latter-day Saints, at least in my experience, um, would be more inclined to uh, uh, kind of kind of repeating or, or drawing upon Joseph Smith's own language uh, present in different sources where, you know, other sources, ha- uh, other churches have um, uh, like a form of godliness uh, they, they do have, you know, various truths in them, uh, but this idea that the LDS church has the, the fullness of the gospel, or it has uh, the, the greatest manifestation of those truths, and, and specifically the, the priesthood authority, um, right? Because it, it collectively, like as an institution, uh, the LDS church doesn't rec- recognize the baptism of, right. uh, of other Christian churches, and so that's one way, a major way that we see this exclusivism manifested uh where um and it's almost funny too because uh i i i think a lot of latter-day saints unfortunately um uh they they want to have their cake and eat it too uh when it comes to exclusivism Mm -hmm. and so when evangelicals or or various christians uh will say you know you're not christian to latter-day saints that might be very offensive to them or it might, you know, uh, put them off or they might not understand it. But then, you know, on, they'll turn around and say, you know, you guys aren't, you guys are apostate Christians or you guys, you know, have a portion of the truth, but not the fullness of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's problematic. Um, well, and, and that seems to be at the heart of most of the dialogue between evangelicals and Latter-day Saints is an evangelical mindset. You kind of come into it with, they're wrong and that has severe implications. Whereas it it does seem like you want the best of both worlds. A lot of times from the Latter-day Saint perspective of, yeah, they're wrong, but it's okay. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? Cause, cause for an evangelical, when you go back and look at, you know, the 1838 account of the first vision and what was said, it's like, Whoa, uh, that's just not what I'm experiencing with my neighbors Mm -hmm. who almost want to make it sound like, yeah, we're all we're all friends yep, with Jesus, they, and it's they, cool. They, yeah, they like downplay it. So yeah. I actually took notes on this too because this is a, a major uh, uh, contested point um, between evangelicals and Mormons: uh, the concept of uh, the same Jesus versus the different Jesus, right? Yes, yeah. And we do we do actually see this present in teachings from different uh, 
LDS church leaders too, where historically uh, some have been very much inclined to say, we worship different Jesuses, we have different conceptions of God, you know, and they, they really, you know, emphasize the, the, the difference here, um, you know, and by implication, the validity of one view of Jesus versus the invalidity of the other, right? Um, and then you have other LDS church leaders that uh, rather than emphasizing the differences would say, well, you know, here's where uh, we would agree. Here's what we have in common. Here's our similarities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, on a lay level, um, many Latter-day Saints, if they say, but we're Christians too, you know, we're just another denomination. Um, uh, while that's true in in a sense, right, that Latter-day Saints identify themselves within kind of Christianity in general, they see themselves as a Christian faith, as a Christ-centered faith. Um, they still um, uh, separate themselves and distinguish themselves from traditional Christianity, which would include Catholicism, Christian Orthodox, Orthodox Christianity, um, and Protestantism, right? And so we still recognize that, like, uh, you know, those people identify as Christians as well. And uh, traditionally, you know, historically, they're part of Christianity. Um, but we still say that we're different. So it's weird because like, we want to be part of the club, but then we also want to say, but you guys are all in the wrong too, right? Uh, Our exclusive claims. Do you think the hesitancy on the part of most Latter-day Saints to go there? Because it does seem just like they don't, Mm -hmm. and this is anecdotal, of course. It's just like, don't even want to go there. Um, Do you think it's because of that societal assimilation aspect? And if so, do you think that, that societal assimilation has just caused a misprioritization of what the Latter-day Saints should be doing in this life. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, when you have any kind of like exclusive truth claim, sometimes that can be uncomfortable for people to articulate, right? Because by implication, you're saying to the other person, you're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, American society as well has just this tendency to, try to downplay religious difference, right? Um, you know, often you'll hear people say, all religions, we all worship the same yeah. God, or, you know, we all believe ultimately the same thing, you know, that we have the same truths, right? And while there's certainly parallels, you can draw similarities, uh, uh, common teachings shared between traditions, um, you know, when you turn to the the philosophical or metaphysical or soteriological foundations for these different worldviews, they're drastically different, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, I think some Latter-day Saints uh, don't completely understand the differences between, let's say, the Mormon concept of God and the classical Christian concept of God. Um, perhaps uh, they are um, intentionally trying to focus on similarities and common ground rather than differences. Um, um, you know, I, I hope, I hope in the majority of circumstances that it's not that, uh, Mormons are trying to be intentionally deceptive. I often, I, I think it's generally either, you know, coming from a place of, of goodwill and trying to, uh, decrease, uh, what they might see as like religious contention or, you know, awkward moments or something, or in an attempt to build relationships built, you know, based off common ground, um, but, you know, the thing is, like, the LDS Church has continued to uh, hold these exclusive truth claims, right? Whether, it, you know, and for those who serve Mormon missions, 
they experience this firsthand in what they teach people uh, in, you know, the requirements for baptism uh, that they uh, uh, have and espouse. Um, even just recently um, at this, uh, at this most recent general conference, um, there, um, the, the church announced a, you know, what's, what's titled the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a bicentennial proclamation to the world. Um, and I just want to read two parts from it. Um, it says, quote, in humility, we declare that in answer to his prayer, God, the father and his son, Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph and inaugurated the restitution of all things as foretold in the Bible. In this vision, he learned that following the death of the original apostles, Christ's New Testament church was lost from the earth. Joseph would be instrumental in its return. And then later it says, we declare that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, organized on April 6th, 1830, is Christ's New Testament church restored. This church is anchored in the perfect life of its chief cornerstone. Um, you know, Jesus Christ is once again called apostles, given them priesthood authority. Um, basically, the church, you know, just very recently reiterated mm-hmm. its historical distinction, you know, yeah. from... And thanks for bringing that up. I was going to bring yeah. it up and then uh, totally forgot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, like, I, I do think that there's been ways and uh, often to build on interfaith relations or, you know, engage in acts of service or things like that. Um, you know, Latter-day Saints uh, institutionally and locally uh, might be inclined to downplay differences or not not emphasize them or 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 whatever um but you know i personally don't see this uh sacrificing of uh more exclusive claims uh exclusive truth claims by the lds church there's some areas where i think we've been more receptive to recognizing the truth present in other traditions right so rather than just writing off um any any sect of Protestantism as being an abomination, right? Uh, or, or the creeds or things like that. I, I've seen, uh, I've, well, seen, I've, seen well, I've seen a lot of Mormons. To, um, yeah. President Nelson with Pope Francis last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, the LDS Church, part of this assimilation has been to try to develop genuine interfaith relationships, uh, not at the cost of down, uh, not at the cost of, you know, completely rejecting our exclusive truth claims, but at least, you know, trying to build models for interfaith relationships and, and acts of uh, service and cooperation. Um, yeah. It, so it, it, it's interesting, but I, I, I can't understand when some evangelicals might say, you know, uh, or take issue with Latter-day Saints maybe saying, but we're Christians too, right? Um, I take issue with that as well because we have different definitions of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Right. And so I both understand where that's coming from on the part of Latter-day Saints, you know, wanting to emphasize either what we have in common or, you know, because uh, Jesus Christ, as Latter-day Saints understand him, is a very central uh, part of their faith. Um, you know, I can see why there would be this move to emphasize that and kind of build off of that. But um, I would completely disagree with any Latter-day Saint, you know, uh, that says, but we're Christians just like you because I don't believe that's an accurate statement. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't believe that any Latter-day Saints um, are really identifying within Protestantism. Um, that's not what they have in mind. Um, they have a different uh, view of what it means to be authentically Christian or, um, uh, you know, we're willing to grant others 
you know, the ability to self-identify as Christians and recognize that, you know, they worship Jesus Christ and they have very uh, Christocentric beliefs uh, while, at the, you know, on, on the same level saying, you know, but ours is the exclusive church, right? We have mm-hmm. the exclusive authority. So I, it's interesting. It's almost a paradox. Um, and, uh, you know, there's definitely tension there. Um, well, I think the, uh, the last question will help kind of summarize everything um, because basically the, this whole conversation is leading toward at the end of the day, what's at stake. Right. And, yeah. and so the last, the last question is what are the most important benefits that an evangelical misses out on by rejecting the restored gospel of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? What, so essentially what's at stake in all of this anyway? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, and it'll vary depending on who you talk to. I think I would have more of a, um, I don't know, perhaps a, a softer take on it just because is of my there a, Is there perhaps a an objective church teaching on it that maybe you could just lay down as a baseline and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That? Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say the official church teaching would be that those who, um, you know, uh, choose not to be members of the LDS church or to accept the restored gospel in this life uh, miss out on the opportunity to uh, make and keep sacred covenants uh, through saving ordinances uh, that is officiated um, through the proper authority as uh, restored to Joseph Smith uh, that has its origin with Jesus Christ. Um, and because of that, um, you know, the, these, these covenants, um, basically one has to enter into these covenants. One has to, um, uh, yeah, one has to enter into them in order to uh, eventually obtain salvation um, and uh, potentially exaltation. And so um, the official church teaching would be that uh, the LDS church in the LDS church, that's where the, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is present. And so uh, not just on, on when it comes to covenants as um, carried out through proper authority, uh, but that, you know, God has prophets and apostles on the earth today who wield that authority and who are authorized to speak uh, on his behalf. And uh, yeah, so, you know, when, when you ask like what's at stake, I think that's a, that's a bit, bit of a different question, at least for me personally, uh, then the question, what, what, what is an evangelical missing out on by not being Mormon? Because I think I would include a lot more things in that category, but mm-hmm. the, the what's at stake language sounds a lot more like um, uh, salvation oriented or like, uh, you know, uh, eternities oriented. Um, well, I, I so, guess the, the most important benefits in, in that aspect of the question is, yeah, I, I mean, I guess maybe start at the top and then work your, work your way yeah, down. Okay, okay. So, so let me put it this way. I've talked with different evangelicals who have proposed a kind of like Pascal's wager uh, when it comes to Mormonism yeah. and Christianity uh, saying that, you know, according to my belief as an evangelical, um, if you do not accept Jesus Christ, if you do not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ as, you know, espoused in uh, the scriptures in the Bible, um, you cannot be saved. Um, and your theology of Jesus Christ has to be correct, right? Um, 
when it comes to the the primary issues, the the primary claims of uh, of the Bible of God's word. Um, and so, if you reject that, you know, or if you do not, uh, if you do not accept Christ's atoning sacrifice on your behalf um, by looking to Him as your exclusive Lord and Savior. Um, you can't be saved. And if you're not saved, uh, then, you know, the afterlife uh, is uh, composed of those who accept Christ and are saved and are able to dwell with God for eternity. And those who are not saved and are, you know, face eternal divine punishment, um, you know, and are uh, cast to to hell. Um, And uh, so that, that eternal punishment, um, not only is that a separation of God, but I think there's a suffering element present there as well. Um, that, uh, you know, th- this life is the life for you to choose whether you believe in Christ or not. Um, you know, I imagine we could have a, a conversation about, you know, people who never hear the name of Christ and, you know, how God may or may not save them uh, as per, I think, Romans 1 um, mm-hmm. in Reformed theology. Um, but just in general, like, if we take the example of like uh, like a Mormon talking to a Christian, hearing the gospel preached, and in this life choosing to reject that, um, you know that they're rejecting salvation. Whereas if a Christian talks with the Mormon missionaries, and let's say they they choose not to convert to Mormonism, um, it's the belief, it's an official belief of the LDS Church that in the afterlife you will also be able to hear the gospel preached and have the opportunity to accept it. Um, and uh, if, if you do that, um, you will be, be able to live in a, um, a kingdom of glory that far surpasses uh, the, the glory of like this earth. It's, it's a great place. Um, and you get a resurrected body. You're able to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, and so like the afterlife is still a good place for you. And let's say you, uh, even uh, you were an awful person and you kind of reject the gospel or whatever in the next life, um, even the, the, the lower kingdom is still kind of better, or at least equivalent to, to earth. Um, and so this concept, I, I guess I'm saying of eternal punishment uh, in the form of uh, the Christian view of hell um, is absent from mm-hmm. uh, Mormon theology. And yeah, so there, there's you, not a bifurcated kind of, um, uh, it's not an either or it's a variety of possibilities none of which seem bad yeah um yeah and so if we're doing a purely like pascal's wager type thing to it um i would probably agree with uh evangelicals as well that the the stakes are higher if christianity um is true if uh, evangelical uh christianity is true um so, you know, in terms of just like the basic stakes, the, that's how I would differentiate it. Um, if we go just beyond like the, the view of salvation, um, I would likely point to distinct doctrines or teachings or, or beliefs or practices present within the LDS church and, and within Mormonism uh, that I find to be personally like very valuable or meaningful or beautiful or, or uh, very impactful uh to both this life and eternity 
Um, but yeah, on a, on a bottom level, uh, I think I think the different views of salvation and what the afterlife consists of, uh, that, that's where the stakes are. Um, you mentioned, as far as like from the church's perspective on what is taught, that the sacred covenants, it sounded like you were saying that those are integral to salvation and exaltation. Could you explain that more of what those what those are and how someone who's not LDS could still go to a kingdom without salvation, what that means. Well, um, so there's uh, at at least two ways of defining salvation within Mormonism, both of which would be uh, valid. Um, It just depends on the context that you're using it. So there's this idea of like a general salvation where everyone who has ever lived will be able to be resurrected and return to the presence of God and judged. Um, And so they'll receive a resurrected body. And so, you know, then after judgment, they'll be relegated to, you know, the the kingdoms of glory, right? So that's like, let's say like a general salvation that all of us are able to return to God um, and uh, uh, be judged and receive our our resurrected bodies. Um, Sometimes, though, salvation is used synonymously with exaltation um, in Mormon thought exaltation being the idea of going to not just the highest kingdom of glory, uh, but also the potential to become like God, um, become gods uh, ourselves. And so uh, in this process of becoming like God, uh, we're able to progress uh, to such a level that, uh, you know, inequalities that God has, uh, we're able to develop as well. And uh, so the requirements for a general salvation versus an exaltation um, would be different. Exaltation uh, being predicated on one's obedience, the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Um, uh, They're, you know, following of these sacred covenants present through various ordinances, uh, many of which are uh, carried out and officiated in Mormon temples. Um, uh, including like the endowment ritual and the the temple sealing, uh, marriage sealing, uh, so that uh, you know, two uh, a, a couple of a man and woman are able to be sealed together as husband and wife, not just for this life, uh, but for the eternities as well. Um, so th- those things all need to be; uh, th- those are all seen as required uh, for exaltation uh, and the the faithful. Uh, observance of them, uh, you know, keeping the commandments and uh, essentially being sanctified uh, to such a, a degree uh, that uh, deification or exaltation occurs. Um, so basically, could it be said that within the Latter-day Saint framework, everybody gets promoted, but not everybody gets exalted? Would that be a yeah, like every, everyone gets saved, but not everyone gets uh, exalted. Um, well. Do you want to venture into outer darkness in this conversation? Well, <laughs> well, that, that's a bit different. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do want to say that bottom line, um, everyone gets saved. And that's not really contingent on one's agency. That's like a like seen as a, a manifestation of, of the grace of God. Um, that like everyone gets resurrected body. Um, virtually everyone uh, exaltation is more predicated upon one's own obedience, faithfulness and works. Um, and, and just because you mentioned outer darkness, outer darkness would be reserved for those who um, 
either knowing of the fullness of the truth. Um, yeah. And knowing of the fullness of the truth, whether, you know, they experience that themselves or, or let's say standing before the judgment bar of God, viewing God face to face or whatever, um, choose to reject, uh, all of it. Um, so that's, that's who outer darkness would be relegated for those who, uh, fully reject uh, God himself and, you know, the, the gospel of Christ and have nothing to do with it. Gotcha. So then um, I guess considering the two different perspectives uh, where you've got, and it is so interesting because from the evangelical standpoint, we do not claim the one true church. We don't have that kind yeah, of claim. Yeah. It, you know, we've got diversity that mm-hmm. exists pretty widely um, and yeah. we see unity in that diversity. Whereas when it comes to uh, Latter-day Saint theology, you have the one true church claim being very prominent, very, uh, you know, foundational to the whole system. Mm -hmm. Then when you switch topics from church to like gospel, then evangelicals are very exclusive and it's one of two options. And it's the opposite for uh, Latter-day Saints where it becomes a, bunch of diversity and then some unity mm-hmm. there where there's a unity in salvation for everybody, even those who um, reject the gospel, <laughs> there's that, but there's a diversity within exaltation mm-hmm. and um, in the Christian perspective, of course, there is no um, diversity. It, there's one salvation and everyone's on the same level. Everyone's exalted to the same level. Um, so considering the evangelical gospel, you know, taking something like Romans that very, very clearly teaches that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that, that Jesus, God in flesh died in our place for our sins and rose again. And that by trusting in his name alone, that a person then is born again and saved for all eternity by trusting in his finished work. And that in that moment, um, you know, passages like Ephesians 2 talk about how we're exalted in that moment, that we are seated in the heavenlies what's your evaluation of the evangelical gospel that is so exclusive um, seeking to be faithful to scripture as opposed to um, the, the gospel of Latter-day Saints, which allows for such diversity. And obviously you're a Latter-day Saint, so we know what Jersey you're wearing, so to speak, but what's your evaluation of the dynamics that are going on there? So I'll speak to my personal experience um, because this was largely a question that I had to ask myself as a teenager when I was actively, and I I mean, I I definitely want to still identify myself as a religious seeker, even though I identify as a Latter-day Saint and, you know, I'm a member and, you know, uh, feel very strongly converted to Mormonism. um, I, I definitely continue to examine and consider evangelical truth claims, right? Um, so even though um, I'm in a different space than I was when I was a teenager, when I wasn't so sure of where I stood, um, I, I still want to consider myself open to change, potential change down the road. Um, when I was a teenager, however, um, one thing that, uh, you know, very much uh, uh, was a very big question for me uh, was um, along the lines of, salvation and who is saved and i i just don't think uh that i i don't i don't think that uh, kind of the bifurcated um afterlife of the evangelical gospel um one in which um 
yes, you know, many are saved, um, but not all. Uh, that was that was a very hard teaching for me. Um, also, uh, the implication of that being that those who are not saved uh, suffer eternally in hell. Um, that was hard for me to uh, find um, a deity uh, that would um, arrange for that uh, to be palatable or one that I felt inclined to worship. Um, you know, granted, I, I'm sure that uh, if I had a particular born-again experience uh, that, you know, you, you would consider to be the, the regeneration of, of the heart, right, um, that uh, I, I would feel differently. Um, but uh, that, that was something that was rather difficult for me. Um, I, I think that came from having two parents uh, that espouse different worldviews, right? So when I considered where the stakes, you know, we already established that uh, the stakes are much more severe uh, within an evangelical worldview. Um, I I had to ask myself, you know, what am I going to, you know, what does heaven look like for me, right? Am I going to be there with my family? Um, and, uh, you know, I found, I found the Mormon worldview to be accommodating of a, uh, of people at varying beliefs or, or levels in a way that does not result in eternal punishment um, to the same extent. And also within Mormonism, there's diversity of thought on whether there's progression between these kingdoms, right? And so um, while many LDS leaders have espoused um, views where, you know, after final judgment, that truly is final judgment and you go to a kingdom and that's where you're at for eternity, other LDS leaders, prophets, um, and members and theologians have advocated for a progression model between kingdoms where it's uh, through the lens of eternal progression. And so even though you are judged and go to a certain place, if you desire to, um, you know, ascend higher or, you know, accept the, the truth necessary to be sanctified and, um, you know, go to a, another kingdom and progress in the eternities. Um, that that's also a a school of thought within Mormonism, and so I found that one um, very um, appealing, uh, compelling. Even um, I, I think you know my personal theology would be very universalist in the sense that I I doubt that there in the afterlife there will be few, if any, individuals that uh, truly do choose to reject God outright. Um, and so it's, it's my personal theology, uh, that's been a product of my life experience where, um, the, the God that I do feel, um, is worthy of my worship or that, that I do actively want to worship is one, uh, that, you know, allows for that to take place. But, but certainly the bifurcated afterlife and the eternal punishment part of the evangelical gospel uh, that was very, very difficult for me to reconcile that with my own belief in God and my understanding of who God is and, and even the morality of God. Um, but uh, certainly I want to recognize uh, that there are passages of scripture, not just within the Bible, but also in Mormon texts, which also, um, you know, espouse a bifurcated afterlife and espouse uh, rhetoric and imagery of 
fire and brimstone hell and things like that. Um, so that that's still present within Mormon texts to a degree. Um, and so I, I can understand in the evangelicals desire to be strictly rooted in scripture, uh, you know, where that theology is coming from. And also within the evangelical gospel, uh, the logical coherence uh, that that view of salvation takes. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it just wasn't one that I found um, compelling, although perhaps in the future, maybe I'll experience something that will, mm-hmm. you know, I'll have a paradigm shift there. But Cool. Yeah, I'd love to explore some of those topics further, but we have gone for a long time, and so we should probably land the plane. Uh, so for those of you watching really hope that this has been beneficial to you this conversation to be able to explain some things in detail and uh, if you have thoughts or questions please share them with us Uh, please share this with anybody that you might think needs to hear more about these topics and um, I guess until next time we're going to go ahead and sign off thank you yeah nice chatting thanks for taking the time